What's up, Open Floor Globe? This is Ben Golliver with the Washington Post. I am joined by Michael Pina of SB Nation. Now, Michael, we had a big calendar date on Sunday, December 15th. That is sort of the unofficial start to NBA trade season. It wasn't like there was 15 deals all lined up, ready to rock right out of the gate. To be honest, it's this is sort of a soft deadline that people get excited about. But the reason why it matters is everyone who signed contracts as free agents last summer is now eligible to be traded. There was tons and tons of players, actually more than 100 players, uh, who are in that category uh, from last summer. Now, it's important to point out, none of the superstar level guys who signed contracts last summer are failing spectacularly, right? So it's not like this crazy flood of A-list talent is suddenly mm-hmm. hitting the trade market. However, uh, 100 guys, you know, 100 plus guys is 100 plus guys. And all of those players' contracts can now be put together into trades. And uh, it just makes the NBA trade machine that much spicier to play with. So Michael, I thought what we would do to kind of kick off and salute the beginning of NBA trade season is to come up with some deals that we would pull for both teams if we were in charge, all right? So it's difficult to get the balancing act properly. I'm sure we're going to have to talk through some negotiations on, okay, which side is winning, which side is losing. But we've already seen a a pretty clear separation between the haves and the have-nots so far to start the season. We know which teams want to be contenders. We know a bunch of teams that are ready to have garage sales like the New York Knicks. So let's try to play buyer and seller and put uh, put some teams together. What do you say? Uh, No one is more excited to discuss fake trades than me. This is going to be a lot of fun. Okay, so it's going to be a four-hour podcast. Everybody buckle (laughs) up. Uh, We'll try to keep it on the brief side. I'm kidding. Uh, Why don't you start, Michael? I'm curious. Uh, Give me the number one trade that you would pull off for both teams if you were in charge. I fear that I'm going to be a little anticlimactic here because you you sent me your uh, your fake trades ahead of time and they are they are some blockbusters on there. Mine aren't that. Well, look at it this way: <laughs> we're going to build up to the spiciness, okay? okay we're going to start wonderful. maybe just with a little bit of hot sauce on top, and we're getting to the full habanero <laughs> okay, later beautiful. later in the program. So go ahead, hit me with your first one. Yeah, I will say I, I tried to get a Ben Simmons trade in here, and it was really difficult with the poison pill nature of his his max contract extension, which was a huge bummer because there's a lot of different trades with him that I would have loved to do. But uh, my first one, it does involve the Sixers. It is the Sixers and the Detroit Pistons. The Pistons will get Zaire Smith, Mike Scott, and Philly's next available first-round pick that's lottery-protected because they owe a first to the Brooklyn Nets this season. And uh, the Sixers get Derrick Rose. Discuss. Ooh. So what you're trying to do is basically um, you're raiding Detroit. You're saying, all right, Detroit, you actually did find like a competent player in free agency this summer, but your team is going nowhere. He's not really of major use to you. You're playing for the future. That's why you want uh, a prospect like Zaire Smith. Uh, eventually, there's going to need to be a retooling or a rebuilding effort, uh, kind of a teardown. So you're you're trying to sell off high on Derrick Rose's value to a team that could potentially use uh, you know, a more traditional backcourt playmaker uh, that that is sort of trying to make do with with Ben Simmons right now. That's your basic philosophy. Exactly. I mean, when it, just talking about the Pistons first off, first off, like I I don't really get their obsession with making the playoffs and either being the nine seed, the ten seed, the eight seed that gets absolutely dominated by the Milwaukee Bucks in round one. Uh, it's just it's it's sad. It's unfair to their fans. This allows them to get some assets. Zaire Smith could be. A good player someday. He was super athletic in college. Uh, uh, you know, they traded Mikhail Bridges uh, for him in the draft. They were very Sixers were very excited about him. Uh, he has not panned out for various reasons. I think in Detroit things could be a little different for him. And then on the other side, I look at the Sixers. They need. They just need a pick and roll ball handler. They they absolutely need one. Ben Simmons is not that guy. Tobias Harris has not been that guy. He's played really well over the last month or so, but he's not that guy, in my opinion, in the playoffs. And and yesterday, the Sixers were in Brooklyn, and Brett Brown said that Josh Richardson was their dot connector, and meaning that he is extremely important in this particular area. And I don't see that in the playoffs. I don't see. I like Josh Richardson. I don't see him being that guy for them for four straight rounds. Derek Rose has been happy. Can I stop sure. you right here? Sure. Does it blow your mind a little bit that 
it's basically 2020 and we are proposing that the solution to Ben Simmons is Derrick Rose. Does that not just make your head spin a little bit based on where we were two or three years ago and the story arcs that these guys have been on? I mean, they're really riding like seismograph waves, right? It says a lot about Simmons. I think it says more about Simmons than it does D Rose, but D Rose has been having an extremely good year. Um, you know, Detroit's offense is so much better with him on the floor. He's a sixth man of the year candidate. His his numbers, if you kind of extrapolate them out for a per possession basis, are almost what they were the year he won the MVP, which is kind of amazing. Uh, so I, I like I like D Rose as just an available, competent backup point guard who can well, be in your crunch time lineups. Yeah, let me ask you this. Are you feeling like he can be covered for defensively too with Philly's group? Like, is that part of the appeal too? It's like his strengths are things that they need but his weaknesses are probably not going to be you know huge liabilities just because of the length and the size that they have at other positions too precisely i think you can hide like that, that's just the benefit of having joel Embiid cleaning up mistakes you'll have al horford most likely in those closing lineups ben simmons can guard everybody in the league so yeah it, that's exactly right i think that uh you can hide d rose you can hide the weakest defender on a team like this Okay, we don't need to actually render verdicts here. We're just throwing ideas out, tossing ideas out. So I like that one. What else you got? Oh, okay. Um, so my next one is uh, it's pretty interesting. I mean, it's 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 Orlando and Atlanta, and we have the Magic getting uh, Evan Turner and uh, Atlanta's top five protected uh, first round pick in this year's draft for Aaron Gordon. So the idea here is uh, that overheard conversation between Trey Young and the front office where the, the front office is like, look, Trey, I know your life really sucks right now. We are going to fix this. We're going to get you some help. This is the get Trey some help immediately so that his life isn't just horrible uh, move. And now you're mm-hmm. putting together kind of an athletic uh, core that includes Trey, Aaron Gordon, and John Collins where you've got some vertical threats, you've got some versatility. Uh, maybe you're taking a shot that Aaron Gordon hasn't been able to show everything that he can do, uh, you know, given Orlando's weird roster crunches and, and playing him out of position at certain times over the years. And you're feeling like fast-tracking a little bit for Trey uh, is, you know, worth parting with a, you know, a first-round pick because you already have more young guys than you can play at this point and they're not necessarily getting the job done. So you're you're kind of hitting fast forward a little bit on your uh, your building plan, right? Yeah, and this kind of chews into Atlanta's salary cap situation, their cap space for the next couple summers, which they're probably not super pumped about. But look, there's, there's really no players uh, in this year's class that I think would help them. And as you said... Yeah, I mean, and on, on top of that, like... The idea of playing with Trey Young sounds like a lot of fun, but if I'm a free agent, let him become a star, uh, you know, a certified top 10 guy before I mm-hmm. want to go sign a free agent uh, deal in Atlanta, right? I don't want to bet on the Hawks building. I want the Hawks to be built. And so from that standpoint, I think you're right. Like if they're going to be getting someone who could be a top three or a top four player for their core, it's probably coming by trader in the draft. It's probably not coming just purely by free agency. Right. And the, the timing would ostensibly be a little awkward here because the Hawks are so bad and this is kind of like a win now move but you know eventually you're gonna need players like Aaron Gordon you're gonna need you know to 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 supplement Trey with DeAndre Hunter Cam Reddish John Collins as you said so I feel like Aaron Gordon is a really good fit there and I also just like I just think that he needs a change of scenery out of Orlando. It just it just hasn't worked out as I thought it would. I'm still a huge fan of his. I think he can blossom beside Trey Young for years to come. And so, yeah, I think it's worth uh, I think it's worth giving up the the uh, top five protected first round pick because like you can only be so young. You need veterans. You need a little bit of experience. So I, I think it's a win now, a win win for both sides. Yeah, the the most delicious aspect of this is Orlando's front office having to explain why they acquired another non-shooter <laughs> in Evan Turner. <laughs> like that press conference, you're not winning that press conference. I mean, maybe you're just like superimposing a picture of like the lottery pr- balls. Yeah. 
That's a you know, press release. Right, right. Um, another good idea. I'm interested. I would I would like Trey Young to have a little bit more stability around him. I'm trying to take it as patiently as possible with him. Uh, we've talked about that on previous episodes. Um, you know, they were competitive the other night against the Lakers, which is good to see. Uh, you know, it's, it's probably better for them that they lose that game from a draft perspective. But, uh, you know, it's been dire at times this year. And I do think they're going to feel the pressure at some point to accelerate this a little bit. Um, so uh, it, it kind of adds up. It's not like Aaron Gordon's 30. You know, you'd, you'd get a little bit more uncomfortable with the idea of trading for veterans if you're looking at a guy who is, you know, into his third contract or on the decline, or if they were going to go out there and try to, you know, make a play for someone like Kevin Love. That's where you would say, okay, is this really the right idea? Are these guys on different timelines between Trey and, and Kevin Love? But you know, Aaron Gordon kind of fits in with a, a nucleus that could grow together for five years. So I, I could see it. All right, what else you got? So this one might make some people a little upset. Uh, it's between the New Orleans Pelicans and the Los Angeles Lakers, who have you, never you can't made a trade trades, before. You can't <laughs> trade Zion to the Lakers. Come on, Michael. What are you not, doing? Why, why are you going to put yet. Zion on the Lakers? He hasn't even played a game yet. <laughs> you got to give up on it. It's, 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 we've seen enough, I think, out of him. Um no, the, the this trade is uh, it's it's Kyle Kuzma, so the the guy who uh, the Lakers uh, held on to in the Anthony Davis trade from the get go. Kyle Kuzma the so- and Ken- the sole survivor, <laughs> exactly. And he's yeah, he's just been voted off the island. So it's it's Kuzma and uh, KCP for JJ Redick. Very interesting. I think JJ Redick needs to be circled here. And we actually got a question from a Open Floor Globe member. Uh, he's checking in from Spain. His name is Alvaro. He writes, I've been a regular listener for a few years. To keep it simple, seeing the way the Pelican season's turning out, I'm surprised JJ Redick doesn't come up more often in trade talks. A $12 million salary for a guy who's an elite shooter with playoff experience. So you're on the same page with Alvaro. I actually have a trade involving uh, JJ Redick as well. It's a nice price point for that type of guy. It makes him pretty flexible to move. I think the philosophical decision New Orleans has to make is, one, are they bringing Zion back this year? If so, do they want to believe in their original vision, uh, or, you know, building around Zion? Because if so, I think Reddick's a pretty big part of that vision, right? Like the shooting, the spacing, the the taking attention, to, the creating the space for Zion. You're going to need those things if you want to get the most out of Zion. I'm always talking about when you're building an organization, find players who make your best player better and make his life easier. Reddick mm-hmm. definitely checks those boxes um, for Zion. So from that standpoint, uh, I would not be in a rush to trade him if I was in New Orleans. Now, if they're just going to decide Zion's out for the year, we're slow playing this thing. We're going to, you know, out of an abundance of caution, whatever you want, you know, we're, we're Ben Simmonsing this one. Um, that is a different uh, formula. Obviously, that puts Redick into play uh, in trade deadline talks in maybe ways that um, you know wouldn't be otherwise. Now. It, the, the trick with trading for Kuzma is you have to pay him, right, um, you know, down the road. It's kind of the same deal as what they're going to be running into with Brandon Ingram where you love getting a young prospect, but you also have to remember like the max deal for him is coming in Brandon Ingram, and Kuzma is going to be expecting, I think, a pretty sizable uh, second contract down the road as well. Um, whether or not he deserves it is kind of a different question, but you know he's been pretty high profile. He's got numbers. Um, and then the KCP side of it, uh, you know, I, I'm not sure, you know, there's there's much interest. Like, what does he do for New Orleans, really? And what's what's tricky there is he has to, I believe he has to give the okay thumbs up for to be involved in a trade. So that could just put the kibosh on it from the door. Because uh, why would you want to leave Los Angeles to go play in New Orleans and this wonderful situation? So that, that kind of, this is why this was my third trade, I guess, because right. it's almost definitely not going to happen. Well, um, I think that you and Alvaro are right, though. Like, Reddick's got to be in the mix here. We need to talk about him uh, as a potential trade target. Uh, I I don't know if the Lakers do that one, actually. Like, I, I think that they, one, there's the clutch connection with KCP for sure. Mm-hmm. But there's also this idea that, like, LeBron is sort of, like, mind-manipulating manipulating KCP over the course of games, like, building his confidence up shot by shot and sort of, like, almost using him like a chess piece, you know, in this game. And I wonder if they would just, I mean, I think in a vacuum, basically every team would take Redick over KCP. I wonder 
what the Lakers would do, <laughs> you know, given the given the personalities and like the Rich Paul factor and all that combined. I wonder if they would just prefer to to stay put. But just imagining like LeBron with Redick, it's just uh, like a LeBron, AD, Danny Green, uh, insert whoever else into that closing unit. Uh, it, like that that lineup is just impossible to defend with Redick, and he's been playing great this year. Uh, oh, he's been your, he's been out of yeah. his mind. He's been shooting very well, and that's why I'm going to try to one up you here, Michael. The only thing that I can think of that compares to LeBron with Redick is Giannis with Redick. Don't we need to get J.J. Redick to the Milwaukee Bucks? And this is one of my first trade scenarios I'm going to throw at you. The Bucks are in a tricky spot because they don't have a lot of contracts that they can move that are of substance, right? So I think the biggest contract they have that's really kind of tradable would be Ilyasova, which is right around like $7 million. So if you package that with smaller deals, you can get into the conversation for a guy like Redick, given where his contract is. But you can't get up to like an Andre Iguodala or another player in that price point, which is unfortunate because I actually think from a basketball fit standpoint, like Iguodala would be an awesome fit for uh, Milwaukee as well. So they're kind of bargain basement shopping here a little bit, but I expect Milwaukee to be very aggressive at this trade deadline. Look, if I'm them, I'm smelling a title. I'm seeing that... Uh, you know, the winning streak is just going on and on. I'm trying to fine tune my rotation and upgrade wherever I can. And if you've got Giannis surrounded by Kyle Korver and JJ Redick, you know, I mean, that like there's space for days. And you could, and they got shooters on shooters there as well. I mean, throw Middleton in uh, to that, uh, you know, smaller look. I mean, Brooke Lopez, if you want to stay big and play a five, he's a shooter. So, I mean, you got a lot of space to work with. Adding in a, a JJ Redick to me is pretty tantalizing for the same reasons as you're describing with the Lakers. So I would love to see Milwaukee be able to put together a package with like, you know, maybe it takes a first round pick and Ilyasova and small contracts to get Redick. That's a pretty, isn't that pretty dreamy? What do you think? It's it's not bad. Is, is defense going to be played by the Milwaukee Bucks in that lineup that you just threw out there? Well, I mean, that's kind of already the problem with Ilyasova, right? It's like that's – and I – I mean, he's fine, like, as a, a roster piece. But to me, when they gave him that contract, my first thought was, like, I really hope this is, like, the lever that they're able to use to flip it into a better player. Um, and last year, they went after Miritich with a whole bunch of second-round picks. Uh, this year, I think they're going to kind of have to get creative to get a defensive uh, – uh, you know, a defensive difference maker. But I think if you have Lopez, Giannis, and Middleton, basically as your your three, four, five, you can put almost anyone at the other two spots as long as they're really good shooters and right. survive. Like, aren't you just winning shootouts in that scenario? And aren't right. you playing enough defense with that front line? When I look at Milwaukee, though, I still, like, I think that their greatest need is going to be a secondary or... Uh, even a third ball handler, playmaker off the bounce, someone who can, uh, you know, it's it's really funny looking at this team, and I think we're going to talk about them a little bit later, but they have so much offensive firepower, and they're so good already that it's just like, I, I wonder how they're going to approach the trade deadline. Like, do you even want to give up anyone to try to upgrade, or do you trust what you've seen so far? I think that the Brogdon thing, losing him, I, I just think his skill set is is, is a skill set that they need to replace. I don't trust Eric Bledsoe. So, like, I, I totally see where you're coming from with adding Redick, and you can never have enough shooting. But, like, I just go back to D. Rose and a player like that. I think that that's the type of player that they may need going into the playoffs. As, 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 as you know, as interesting as it, it would be as someone who can't really space the floor, and it would be a different role for him, I think, than... Uh, than the other shooters that they've kind of that they have around Giannis and Middleton, but that that's someone who can create off the bounce when Giannis gets not taken away but limited. I, I just think it's it's critical for them. Yeah, that that piece is easier to get though, probably right. I mean, hopefully it's a little bit cheaper. Um, I mean, they could they could potentially do both those things. I, I'm agreement though. They need that piece. If I'm them, I still. I'm still reluctant to trade Bledsoe, um, and, and part of the issue is I think they have a lot of guys who make more sense to them than they make on the trade market, so that's kind of what handicaps them in actual trade talks, because like, I think Brooke Lopez, Robin Lopez, Giannis, Middleton, even Wesley Matthews was where his number is and, and what he's giving them as a fit, Bledsoe, 
I mean, even DiVincenzo, like to me, any I know a lot of Bucks fans love DJ Wilson, are pretty reluctant to put him into to you know trade situations. But even on top of that, guys like <laughs> George Hill and Corver, I think all those guys make more sense in Milwaukee than elsewhere. So like the sure. the trade value part is tricky. So like I'm not calling all those guys like quote unquote untouchable, right? But you know, you're you're tweaking around the margins if you're Milwaukee uh, at the deadline. You're not you know, radically altering, uh, your core. And so that limits what you're going to really be able to get back. If they could get, if they could flip Ilyasova into a shooter and then add another ball handle, like you're describing to me, that would be like an A plus deadline. And that'd be sort of what I would, uh, be trying to accomplish. Uh, and even if it took however many draft picks it takes to get that done, go all in. Now's the time to do it. Go win the title Milwaukee. Um, so that was one trade I came up with. Um, how about this one? Uh, I'm going to go with, uh, I mean, it's kind of floated out there a little bit, but like Cleveland Cavaliers and Phoenix Suns, they tango, you know, for a Kevin Love deal. Love obviously wants to change the scenery. Uh, he doesn't want to be on a team going absolutely nowhere. Uh, Phoenix has some contracts that are movable, you know, expiring contract, uh, you know, like a Tyler Johnson, Frank Kaminsky, not the worst uh uh, you know, financial hit coming back for Cleveland. And then they maybe throw in a first round pick um, so that, you know, Cleveland has something that they can, you know, hold up as a, a shiny object to their fan base and say, hey, we got something for Kevin Love, this beloved player for years and years whose time is rapidly dwindled and, and his trade value has rapidly dwindled. Um, the reason why I picked the Suns out of some of the other candidates for Kevin Love trade it's because you have to look past a lot of red flags with Kevin Love. We talked about the positional fit issues uh, last week in terms of is he quick enough to guard fours? Uh, is he really capable of guarding fives you know, at a very high level? So to me, the answer is not really going forward. So, you know, main contenders and second tier contenders should be a little bit cautious with Kevin Love. The age factor, the injury uh, issue factor the three years and 90 million left on his contract after this one is definitely a concern uh, going forward. And so I was looking for a team that struggles to attract free agent talent and who would be highly motivated to take on some risk, knowing that, you know, in Phoenix's case, it could get them to the playoffs for the first time since 2010. That's a big win. Their, their uh, fan base and franchise would love to be able to sell that as progress. I think Love's a pretty decent fit, you know, pick and pop wise uh, with a Devin Booker. Uh, he's a good passer, you know, a secondary playmaker, which definitely helps uh, for their offense. And then if you're playing guys like Baines and Aiton at center, um, you know, love alongside them to space, uh, you know, is, you know, when you're playing him with Baines, now you've got basically five out. When you're playing him with Aiton, at least Aiton has some room to operate. So I thought the fit with their core pieces is decent. Uh, you know, from Phoenix's standpoint, it's kind of like, what do they have to lose? Um, you know, it's not like they've got a lot of reputation of like, uh, you know, amazing moves for the last five years, like, you know, riding on a Kevin Love decision. I just think, you know, hey, why not? Like, you know, pull the trigger, give it a shot. So a couple quick questions. Uh, first up, is the is the draft pick that you're giving up in this trade to Cleveland, is that unprotected? I mean, I would probably do like, you know, minor, like, top five protection so i don't get absolutely embarrassed like you know the kyrie irving pick from the clippers or whatever um but i don't think it would need to be like crazy protected right yeah i think it's it's definitely an interesting fit this is like probably the most popular destination for kevin love beyond portland uh for a lot of reasons well i think um, it makes way more sense in portland but what do you think which one makes more sense phoenix or portland if i was man if i was portland adding that contract i mean i get i get kind of where they're at right now uh, with Dame and you're not in a position to take a step back so you might as well just go for it and then kind of gear up next year with everybody healthy everybody on the same page so from that perspective it makes sense Phoenix going after him uh, I think it makes a little less sense just because of the timelines don't really fit and if I'm giving up an asset uh, you know, like if I'm Phoenix, I want all my assets and like, I want to grow this thing out. Aiton's super young. Devin Booker's still super young. I want to build around those guys as slowly as I possibly can. And, you know, if something were to happen to Kevin Love physically and I was strapped with that contract and it just screwed my books for the next three years and Devin Booker kind of stalled out a little bit, Aiton did not take a leap forward. Uh, you know, I also think that 
Kevin Love was not really able to play the five at all uh, in Phoenix, given what they have there, which could be a little problematic for him. You know, you'd want to see him a little bit at that position, which I think is potentially his 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 more natural spot going forward, given where he is in his career and where the game is. Um, so I think it's a little tricky. I mean, it wouldn't shock me at all if a, if a deal like this was done. Uh, but I do like Portland a little bit better in terms of fits for him. Yeah, the only reason why I'm kind of out on the Portland idea is because they already have those max deals for Dame and CJ. And it's like, to sure. me, if, you're ha- if your top three is Dame, CJ, and Love all on basically max deals, I feel like you are so tied to their health and their chemistry to to do winning at any point. I don't feel like that group has that high of a ceiling short term. And then it only gets worse as Love ages, right? So I would be... It's almost like they've maxed their credit card out, right? And now it's like, oh, should we take out a payday loan to trade for Kevin Love? And the answer is no, don't do it. Like, go the other direction. Try to cut yeah. costs. Yeah. Uh, but I, the the thinking in Portland is that, okay, you have Whiteside's expiring contract and you're not going to have cap space to chase people. So you could use that contract to bring in a talent like Kevin Love where otherwise you wouldn't be able to kind of compete for him. And then once Whiteside's contract expires, you're not going to be able to have that lever to bring in another player. It's a compelling argument, but again, it, it sort of uh, operates under the assumption that they feel like they can still win at a high level. And I don't know if uh, if the rest of their roster is good enough for that formula to still work. And so I guess if I was an owner, if I was Jody Allen, I would be taking a very skeptical stance towards all these trade proposals and just basically being like, are you sure this is going to work? <laughs> like, why? what makes you think uh, I should be spending $90 million the next three years on Kevin Love? Like, I, I would be more inclined to just sort of cut costs, to pull things back in the line, to maybe make a five-hour-long video documentary of last year's Western Conference uh, playoff run and just distract my fan base with the amazing highlights from that run as opposed to you know, trying to kind of like keep this thing going along uh, in the short term. Yeah, and, and when you have contracts that expensive, obviously you need production out of your youngsters. And Zach Collins kind of plays the same position as Kevin Love. So that's a little tricky situation there. And then you'd really need someone like Anthony Simons to take a gigantic leap forward going forward. And uh, also Yusuf Nurkic still around. Maybe he's able to bounce back in a health wise and, and give you something next year. But yeah, it, it's 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 difficult to move this contract with, with Love's contract. I mean, um, for all the it's reasons rough. that you outlined, yeah, <laughs> it's because we're talking about some desperate teams right now, and we're even struggling to like talk them into him. That's not great. The one benefit, if you did have Zach Collins and Kevin Love, is it could be the Vink- uh, the Winklevoss twins part two. They used to have Myers Leonard and Mason Plumley, the original Winklevoss twins um, front line. Uh, this would allow them to recapture that magic in Portland. Certainly, a lot of. Uh, you know, hipster T-shirt companies and sticker brands, I'm sure, can make a lot of money off that uh, if they brought back uh, Zach Collins and Kevin Love. Okay, two more trade <laughs> ideas real quick. The San Antonio Spurs need to trade DeMar DeRozan to the Chicago Bulls in a deal for Otto Porter. You can maybe throw in another pick and going back to San Antonio there, uh, however you want to balance that out. But it's time for these two can bad I, can teams I, can, ben, to can just I stop swap. you for two seconds? Yeah. What... I thought that this one was a joke. I got to be honest. It's so mean. It's so mean to DeMar DeRozan. Like, <laughs> come on, man. <laughs> why? Why? I mean, he's not, like, Otto Porter has just been, like, a rotten corpse this whole season. Like, and, uh, like, I, I understand the contract situation, but, like, DeMar DeRozan has played, like, okay basketball offensively. I mean, I, I like, you know, it's like if I were trading DeMar DeRozan, I would not be like, there's no way if I'm the Spurs, I'm just getting Otto Porter back. Like that's, that's malpractice. Okay. I said there could be some picks going involved going back. <laughs> I'm just saying the basic framework of the deal, they make practically the same amount of money. Now, mm-hmm. DeMar DeRozan's giving you box score stats, but we know it's not translating to winning. It just isn't. The defensive numbers have been atrocious. And I think most importantly, from San Antonio's standpoint, it's time to bite the bullet and go forward with the rebuild. And I think it's addition by subtraction. If you're San Antonio, create room for the young players. If you happen to lose games in the short term, that's fine. Your draft pick stock improves. No problem there. The next version of the successful Spurs does not include DeMar DeRozan. He is in the way right now. And obviously, I would also be trying to trade LaMarcus Aldridge. But I think it is important to move DeRozan out 
Um, and the reason why I would argue for Porter, look, he looks worse in Chicago <laughs> than he would look basically anywhere else. I'm not saying you're going to be able to revitalize his career and turn it around, but there's a real NBA player in there, right? And he has just sure. been uh, completely buried in the the Chicago dysfunction. He's also a classic 3 and D guy. San Antonio is all, always targeting those guys. And I think just positionally, he is spacing in a way that DeRozan doesn't. So if you are trying to operate things from you know Bryn Forbes or... Uh, you know, whoever else in the backcourt, you know, I think that Porter is a fairly clean fit with their other pieces there. And I think the tricky part with DeRozan is I don't think he has a lot of trade value, right? So you're not going to be getting something good back for him. You're not getting real assets back for him. So if you could do this kind of bad contract swap, maybe pick up a draft pick along the way, rebalance your roster, and then let the young guys blossom, um, you know, a little bit more touches and time for Derek White. Um, why can't that work? I... Just looking at Chicago's roster, like I, it didn't really dawn on me until now that watching DeMar DeRozan and Zach Levine share a backcourt would, I mean, that's like, <laughs> I don't know what the, what's the opposite of a league pass team? Because that is exactly what the Chicago Bulls would be. I would, I would literally no. never, ever watch them play. They call that the cord cutter's dream. You know, you just <laughs> cut the cord and you never go back. Uh, well, here's the thing. So baked into this trade proposal is a complete disrespect for Chicago's front office, just period. Okay. I'm going to just be honest with that up front. Like, I don't think anyone should trade for DeMar DeRozan. Um, and well, that's not true, but I don't think they should trade anything good for him. And I think trying to build your team around him is kind of a fool's errand at this point. And San Antonio uh, has learned that lesson the hard way, but Chicago has got real problems. Everybody's angry right now. People are mad at Boylan. The fan base is not turning, uh, uh, you know, turning up and and showing up to games as much as they used to. The chemistry seems off. The pieces definitely don't fit. What DeRozan would give them is a guy to sell jerseys, a known face, um, a guy who's going to give you twenty a night, one way or another, and the allure of progress. Right, kind of like, uh, you know, a skin deep superstar right like a mannequin superstar like you know in the at the uh, holiday christmas uh you know shopping at the mall right like it's not a real person he's a mannequin star so is that better than what they have going on right now currently if he's kind of the one who's mostly operating the offense and levine and marketing are kind of spacing around him and are they able to win you know 40 percent of their games at some point in the not too distant future with DeRozan as the main guy um, is he just more talented than any player that they have on their roster right now at this moment? Um, those are the kinds of questions that would lead me as the Chicago Bulls front office to consider a DeMar DeRozan trade. I think, I mean, a smart Chicago Bulls fan will not see this as progress. They will see this as exactly what happened when the Bulls signed Rondo and Dwayne Wade to join Jimmy Butler for that season from hell. So, so what you're I, saying is it's it's going to happen. This idea is basically <laughs> <laughs> guaranteed. And it just like the 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 worst part about it is and I'm not even like I'm not a huge Demar fan at all. Uh I don't think I'm as down on him just as a player as you are, but like what it does to Kobe White and Larry Markkinen and Wendell Carter and guys who are on your roster that you want to see get touches, get shots, um develop. I I don't think that DeMar DeRozan is is his game uh, and his temperament is just not fit for that type of environment at all. I think he needs to be in a much more competitive situation with real stakes. That's just not what the Bulls where the Bulls are right now. Yeah, I just think that they're both dysfunctional and impatient. And I would not be surprised at all if they made this type of move where it was like, you know, we've drafted some young players Two years from now, these guys could be pretty good, but everyone's calling for our jobs right now. We invested in Boylan, and that's already kind of blowing up in our face. We need to do something to restore credibility and decency. We don't have the stomach for a four-year building plan, and here's our shortcut solution. Would not be surprised at all if Chicago did something like that at the trade deadline. Hey, guys, what's up? This is Ben Golliver with Sports Illustrated's Open Floor Podcast. Keeping a healthy lifestyle should be easy, right? You eat veggies, drink green smoothies, exercise to get your heart rate up, and do yoga to bring your heart rate down. Woo. Well, maybe not so easy, but there is something that helps improve everything, and you can do it with your eyes closed. 
It's sleep. Sleep Number knows what it takes to sleep your best. The Sleep Number 360 Smart Bed lets you choose your ideal firmness, comfort, and support on each side. Your Sleep Number setting It's the perfect solution for couples. These beds are so smart, they respond to your every move and automatically adjust to keep you sleeping comfortably all night. Proven quality sleep is life-changing sleep. And now, for a limited time during the Memorial Day sale, save $1,000 on the new Sleep Number Special Edition Smart Bed, a queen now for only $17.99. You'll only find Sleep Number at Sleep Number stores or by visiting www.sleepnumber.com. That's www.sleepnumber.com. All right, my last idea, maybe my, my spiciest one for you. The Toronto Raptors trade away franchise legend Kyle Lowry to the Utah Jazz to get back Mike Conley and two first-round picks. What do you think, Michael? Damn. And I first saw this one, like, kind of exploded my brain a little bit for a second. I mean... <laughs> that's, that's what I'm here for. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's... I. I, I, my first reaction beyond after that, after I picked up the pieces of my own cranium, were like, I, I think it's a little too early to give up on the Mike Conley era in Utah. Is that like, is that fair to say? Oh, I like that you're kind of cutting against the grain here because I'm imagining there's a lot of people in Utah who are probably trying their hardest to be polite and not run him out of town, but probably want to do just that. Um, but go on. No, yeah. <laughs> um, I, I mean, just time is what, what I think a lot of teams that are struggling right now need. Uh, and to incorporate someone like Mike Conley into a team that has kind of known what it's about for so long and plays this style that Conley needs to adjust to. It's been super rough early on. I mean, his numbers have been atrocious. Uh, I will say that they're starting five has been, when healthy, really good and, and effective, and he's a part of that. Um, I don't think Conley is the problem, to be honest, in Utah. I think I think Donovan Mitchell has been one of the more disappointing players for me personally. Uh, I think I've said that uh, on the show before, um, just how he's played, how he has not progressed in intelligent ways. I mean, he's kind of a bit of a black hole, and he takes really dumb shots. So he's, he's kind of more of a reason than I think... Uh, Mike Conley is if I'm if I'm going to be playing the blame game in Utah and I also don't think necessarily that Kyle Lowry could come in and just save the day and 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 with Kyle I mean you're you're not you're trading for someone who's who's older Conley or Lowry they're they're about the same age and we'll just say that they're like basically this functioning as the same age so you're not really getting a younger player uh you're getting someone who has injury history as Conley has as well. So, I mean, Lowry is perennially underrated and a, a champion, and he's shown that he can get it done in the playoffs, but I just think this is a lot to give up for, uh, a lot to give up to get him. Okay, so uh, I said that off the start we should make trades that both teams would say yes to. I think on this one, and maybe now that I'm thinking about it, both teams would say no, which is obviously <laughs> the sign of a terrible trade, but I want to at least go through the mental journey with it, right? So from Utah's standpoint, you trade for Conley. That was supposed to be the move that catapults you into becoming a true contender. And it just has not happened, right? And you invested a lot of intellectual capital in terms of your thought process, planning, timeline, all of that in going out there to get Conley at the same time you're paying Bogdanovich. You're kind of loading up uh, to make the most out of you know Rudy Gobert's prime and Donovan Mitchell's ascendance, right? And the plan just has not quite come together. And so your options are continue to ride it out and hope for the best. And if Conley keeps shooting 30%, you're dead in the water. Or try to, you know, and also, and by the way, you're dead in the water this year, and it's only going to get worse next year as Conley continues to age, right? That's the fear. Or you try to flip Conley's contract and whatever other sweeteners you can to get an upgrade at that point guard position. And I also considered a player like Drew Holiday uh, maybe uh, as an option here or some other high-level point guard. Uh, The reason why I went with Lowry is you do have the playoff experience. You do have the shooting, which is desperately important alongside Mitchell. You do have the playmaking, which I think is important alongside Mitchell if he's getting into some of these ruts that you're describing. And I think he just kind of generally fits that hard-nosed Utah style. From a contract perspective, they're pretty similar, Conley and Lowry, uh, after Lowry got that extension. 
And so, you know, basically, uh, Toronto would do this because they would say, look, we've been good uh, to very good, but we're not great this year. Uh, the deep playoff run is not coming. We're better off trying to just play the asset game and stock up as much as possible in anticipation of sort of the Pascal Siakam era. And, you know, Conley can be a placeholder for the next year or two. Uh, and, you know, we can pay Van Vliet, you know, obviously he's going to be kind of the, the guard of the future there. Um, and then you can pocket the extra first round picks to make deals with down the road. And that if both Lowry and Conley are, are going to be subjected to aging and injury issues, you might as well have the extra picks to show for it. And you're not sacrificing that much this year. Yes, it's difficult to trade a, uh, you know, a popular player, but you would at least, you know, better position yourself for the future without like, you know, tearing apart your chances in the playoffs because, you know, your chances maybe aren't as, uh, you know, amazing as they seemed like in the first month of the season. So that would sort of be the thought process on both sides. Did either one of those arguments kind of compel you to rethink things, Michael, or are you just out? I'm probably just out. I mean, if I was the Raptors, I, I would be pretty intrigued for the, the draft to get those draft picks. That's kind of... That would be more of an impetus for me to get the deal done than anything else, to be honest. I mean, you don't, like, I feel like Lowry is uh, not nearly as valuable. First of all, I think the stakes in Toronto right now coming off a championship are really low. Uh, so it's kind of like a glory year where right. you can do anything. So that's what I'm saying. So aren't you cashing out pretty high on Lowry's declining value, get multiple picks from a team that's desperate and needs, you know, they're up against the clock. They need a point guard solution. Uh, and you get back kind of a placeholder point guard that you can, you know, experiment with here going forward. If I was Toronto, I would think about it, man. I really would. No, my, Yeah, I, I would think about it if I'm Toronto and potentially do it. If I'm Utah, I can't afford to give up two more first round picks after I gave up. What did I give up two to get Conley? I'm a, I'm a small market team. This is how, like, like this is how I get talent. I don't, I don't sign players in free agency. I develop through the draft. And so if I don't have any draft picks to, uh, to augment later on in my team later on in Donovan Mitchell's career, and he just like leaves in free agency because we haven't done anything, then that's like where you get into a really sticky situation. And the, f your, the future of your franchise is just, it's depressing for decades to come. So um, it, it would be, you need those picks is, is, what i'm trying to say here no i got you you don't want them to over leverage i hear it i just think that they're dealing with some real disappointment man if this ends in a first round and out exit uh for utah this year that's a bust of a season you know and we're not gonna like i mean most national media doesn't like come after the small market teams oh you guys suck you know you didn't you get over the hump like you were supposed to but i was pretty jazzed up you know pardon the the phrase wow. for utah this year like i thought that the the lineup fit very well their main pieces were going to be set up for success um, they had the multiple ball handlers they had the spacing they had the shooters they had the track record of elite defense and uh they've been fine but they were supposed to be a lot better than fine and if i was their front office i would be feeling some real pressure to do what I could at the trade deadline to shake things up. And actually, you know, honestly, same deal for Denver. They're in a weird spot right now. I'm sure they're just hoping that Jokic snaps out of it. But that's another team that I think should be facing a little bit of pressure from a small market standpoint to get back to what preseason expectations seem like they would be. All right, that's enough fake trades. We got some great trade-related questions, though, from the Open Floor Globe. They emailed openfloormail at gmail.com, openfloormail at gmail.com, and Ty writes in with a great question. Ty writes, with trade season heating up, there's lots of talk about getting salaries to match and small de details of contracts for players, which are so complex that no fan keep, keep up. What is one rule from the CBA that you would want removed or changed to make things easier so that more trades could happen? All right, Michael, great question from Ty. Uh, what do you think? How would you uh, make the, the trade machine experience more fun for NBA fans. I mean, I would just keep it simple and, you know, follow the track of this question, which is any, I would make it so that any player could be traded for any player and uh, cut out the, you know, a, a contract needs to be within 120% of another in terms of salary to match and, and try to balance everything out and make everything fair and make it so that 
Okay. So let's explain this. So for fans who don't know, like if you have a, a player who makes $10 million right now, you can't just trade him for a guy who makes $25 right. million by himself. There has to be within a matching band, right? So if he makes $11 million, that's cool. If he makes $9 million, that's cool. The guy you're trading him for, that would be a legal trade. And so what you're saying is expand those bands or actually eliminate them completely so that just every player is fair game no matter uh, how much it would cost his team uh, upon yeah, coming back? Yeah, like I, I feel like these rules are they're made to protect teams from themselves and uh, owners are just always going to be owners and it's really difficult to tell a billionaire no. So that's why it's in the rule book. But I do feel like... Uh, front offices have gotten increasingly intelligent throughout the league every year. Uh, they're, they're staffed up. They know the rules. They know the what can happen uh, if a mistake is made where you trade a guy on a rookie-scale contract who's giving you the production of a Luka Doncic for a guy who's 30 years old making uh, $30 million uh, a year. I think in a league where any player can be traded for another regardless of contract size, that there are, are pros and cons. Um, so like more trade, the pro obviously is that more trades equals more joy and more fun and more news and more things for you and I to chew on, on this podcast. And that's, that's great. And it can open up the possibilities. I mean, when we were doing this exercise and getting prepared for this episode, it was difficult, honestly, to come up with legitimate trades because of this. There's so many rules. I mean, the, I said at the top, that I wanted to try to move Ben Simmons, but I couldn't because he has a poison pill because of his max contract extension and moving him. And it's like way too complicated to get into right now. And I don't think I could if you paid me. Um, but like, I just want to make a straight up trade Ben Simmons for Drew Holiday or Ben Simmons for D'Angelo Russell or Ben Simmons for CJ McCollum. And I can't do those trades because of the CBA restricting me. So on on the one hand, like those trades are fun, and I think that they would be really exciting. On the other, if the league is too trade happy, I do wonder what it does to the actual product with so many different players having to coexist with new teammates constantly. I think we're already seeing a little bit of a, like aesthetically, I think there's been a little bit of a negative impact that's hard to measure, but... I think it's real, and I think the league needs to worry a little bit more about the product and what we're seeing, and you won't get you know, a, a team like the Golden State Warriors going five years in a row with the same core or those all those Spurs teams going together with the same core. I think you'll see a lot more player movement with free agency being what it is, and then if trades are just a, a wide-open bonanza, it could, be, it could be tricky for a fan to to watch the NBA and keep track of where everybody is going. Does that make any sense to you? It does. I think one of the reasons why they put in the matching thing is they were worried about certain teams just trading off expensive players just solely to cut salary. And they, they were also worried that like big market teams that had greater revenue opportunities would be able to just aggregate all these big salary players, have all the best guys in their team. And it would lead to a situation where you know, you, your competitive balance is, you know, affected and, and it gets into more haves and haves nots. So I wouldn't necessarily remove um, all of the salary matching requirements, but I could be talked into loosening it a little bit uh, just from a percentage standpoint. The rule that I want to change, though, I don't know how you feel about the amnesty clause. I have always loved the amnesty clause, this idea that you could just like pay to make a player just disappear <laughs> you know like you give him money and just now he's not on your salary cap anymore um it always leads to funny situations where guys get amnesty that some other team picks them up uh, you know it definitely helps teams if if they're willing to to pay the money to go away because you can just kind of erase a mistake from your life i love uh just that mental concept of you know it's you're almost like canceling a toxic person out of your life by by hitting the amnesty clause on them. Uh, so I would be in favor of maybe one amnesty clause per team per year, you know, and, and usually they only have brought them up, uh, you know, when they've done new collective bargaining agreements. So like once every five years and they didn't even have one in the most recent one, uh, which was a, a real bummer to me. And, you know, I know the contracts are shorter now, but still there was an awful lot of guys who signed contracts in 2016 that would have been amnestied by now, right? And they just keep getting traded for each other. You know, the Allen Crabs of the world, um, you know, Tyler Johnsons of the world, they just kind of keep bouncing around, bouncing around, and uh, Evan Turner's of the world. And it would just be better 
I think for everyone, if they could just, you know, amnesty those players, they get to come back in, they get all their money from the original deal, they get to come back in and go double dip, get a new contract with somebody else on a more reasonable number, and the team would just have that space to go in and do whatever they wanted with it. To me, that's the rule I want to see change. Who is your favorite amnesty of all time? Wasn't it Andre Blatch? Like, didn't he get amnestied basically almost before his deal started, <laughs> yeah. practically? Um, that is correct. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there was was uh, did Gilbert Arenas get amnestied or just bought out? He did. Gilbert was amnestied by the Magic. Yeah, yeah. So, see, these are great, right? What do you have a favorite? Uh, I remember Baron Davis getting amnestied by the Cavs. I thought that one was hilarious. Um, you know, the Knicks because they're the Knicks, uh, amnestying Chauncey Billups. I thought was, and then I I think he went to the Clippers after that, and it was like, what? Ah, oh, the Knicks. Um. Yeah, there's just so many. Uh, I, I, so don't you want one of these every year? And like, we could come up with a list of twenty guys who get amnestied right it now. Is, right? Oh, twenty is that's that might be a little steep, just because of as you said, like the, I think contracts are just a lot more easier to to get off of right now. And uh, I also think that you know if you're a GM and you you sign someone and, and then you're amnestying them, that's just like a really because you still got to pay the guy. He's just not on your cap. So if you're going to the owner saying, yeah, so anyway, yeah, I signed Luol Deng to a $80 million contract and uh, six months ago, and uh, it hasn't really worked out. So we're just going to amnesty him. Like if I was the owner, that would not really jibe with me. Right. But then we can know which GMs really have juice, right? Like if you could sell an amnesty, you could sell That's anything. True. That's <laughs> true. <laughs> like, hey, I need the undo button on an $80 million contract. If the owner says yes, okay, like you're actually empowered to do your job. Um, no, you're right. I mean, owners have hesitated at times in the past. Sometimes they delay the amnesty, right? Like they wait until uh, they can get at least another year of value out of a guy before doing it. Um, to me, I just think it would el- introduce an element of chaos. It would introduce more spending power. The players would get their money, so they're not going to complain. It's a little bit embarrassing, but you know the whole double dip thing comes into play. Um, I just see no downside to it. You know, it's like if if teams aren't going to use the amnesty, fine. Um, but it's just one more weapon to kind of more carefully align production with uh, compensation. Um, and so, from that standpoint, I would be in favor of it. Okay, let's close up here. We got some great emails uh, from the Open Floor Globe, around the globe, wanting to talk about, uh, you know, various NBA, uh, you know, habits, but also, you know, fan conduct and fan behavior. So we got Sean from London. He writes, Open Floor London is calling. Could you please explain why it's taboo to use garbage time as practice to train certain players and skills that they are lacking? For example, why can't a team like the 76ers just keep Ben Simmons on the court every time they're winning in a blowout just long enough so that he can shoot two, three, four, maybe even five three-pointers or jumpers as practice? A key player needs valuable reps in the limelight in-game situations, but without the full pressure of needing to hit the shot to win the game. The player's already warmed up. He's in his jersey. He's ready to go. So why can't Ben Simmons just get shooting practice? Uh, interesting question from Sean for sure. Michael, thoughts? I feel like this would be embarrassing for everyone involved. Like Ben Simmons would be embarrassed that he's in still in the game in a blowout. He would be pissed off. The other team would be embarrassed that he's trying to jack up threes in what's ostensibly a competitive environment. Uh, I, I I think that, you know, we have unwritten rules for a reason. And, you know, I'm not against running up the score or anything like that. But just the sake of improving your skill set, like, I... I, I don't even know how it helps Ben Simmons, to be honest, because he knows that he's doing it in an environment that doesn't matter and is irrelevant. So I don't know that, how that would help him uh, in like an actual compared compared to an actual playoff game. Um, I don't know. This is uh, this is an interesting question, though, I got to say. So I think what we're really dealing with here is kind of just the different standards and conduct between maybe soccer or, you know, football, as, as they might call it in London and basketball, you know, running up the score is something that's just really frowned upon. That's why it's a taboo. You're not trying to embarrass your opponents in basketball. Um, I think that's something that we see at all age levels uh, and have for basically my entire life where, you know, once the victory is in hand, if the team that's losing 
pulls their best players out of the game. They wave the white flag. And so therefore, it, the game enters this new period where everyone just kind of agrees to you know, play out the string, uh, but you know, let the, the subs get some use. So that's sort of where the taboo part comes from. It's well-established. Uh, it's been funny to watch, though, because with the rise of the three-pointer, crazy runs by bench groups, uh, you know, where they're like going on like an 18-0 run to, to take a game that was out of reach and now put it back into reach have become a much more common occurrence. So you're seeing some coaches have to actually bring their starters back into the game late when they don't think they would need to during garbage time. It's just complicated this whole uh, you know conversation about when is a game safe. So like, for example, James Harden's out there scoring 60 against the Hawks and they're up by like 40 or 50 points. And there is some argument to be made that like, hey, look, if you're up 30 early in the third quarter, that game is not necessarily out of hand uh, enough to to put in your bench players. So um, this is just, you know, a very interesting and kind of thick ethical um, question. But I do believe that if the losing team takes out their best players for the night it's not appropriate for you to leave Ben Simmons out there <laughs> practicing three-pointers, even if he's not a good three-point shooter. I think it's just, uh, by American and NBA standards, disrespectful. And I, I do think that some of these uh, these standards, though, are evolving. I mean, we talked about you know necessarily chasing stats in a blowout. That's something that I believe is going to be happening more often here in the last couple of years. If you look at the bench celebrations during blowouts, those have completely transformed from five to 10 years ago where, uh, you know, kind of in a pre-Warriors era, I think the celebrations were much more muted. If you look at the the Lakers on the bench now, they look like an AAU team. I mean, they're just whooping and hollering, going crazy. You know, people got mad at LeBron for taking his shoes off. I thought that part was a little bit silly, but it's definitely a stark contrast to how teams conducted themselves even 10 years ago. Um, and so I think from that standpoint, maybe we are going to head towards a scenario where, Uh, garbage time is uh, viewed differently by the NBA community. And it could be used more for practice, like the emailer is hoping, uh, or it could be used for other more productive things. But like in soccer, they just run the score up, it's 20 to zero, and they're still doing it. Like, you know, it's just sort of like, if you can't stop us, we're going to keep playing. Um, And that's just not how it is uh, in basketball. So I think that's the the key factor um, for our emailer to consider. All right, let's get to some of these fan questions. I teased these last week. Um, some very interesting philosophical questions on what it means to be a team fan or a player fan and everywhere in between. Alan writes, I recently had a friend tell me I'm not, quote unquote, not a real fan of the Oklahoma City Thunder because I have begun to support the Memphis Grizzlies. I only began seriously following the NBA two years ago with Russ's MVP season. Since then, I've grown to adore the Thunder for their sustained commitment to culture and relationships built under Sam Presti. The Memphis Grizzlies allure me because I see them almost like an opportunity to experience the growth of 10 years of Thunder basketball, which I missed out on. Rookie Jaw and rookie Russ, a young Kleiman and a young Presti. They're both small market teams. And now you can see where one of them went today. So I'm confused. I want both teams to succeed. It's like the two teams are melding together in some magical way for me, yet it seems unfaithful. And as my friend put it, it's not real. I'm sure all of this would enrage Jimmy, the diehard Orlando Magic fan who said you only can cheer for one team. So Michael, what he's sort of describing is he's coming late to being a Thunder fan. He's identifying elements of the Thunder that he likes, but he's realizing those elements don't really necessarily exist with the Thunder as much as they once did. (laughs) And now he wants to find the next Thunder. It does feel like he's trading his spouse or significant other in for a, a younger model, which I think a lot of times would get you in trouble with like the advice calmness of the world. I don't think Ann Landers would love this idea. Um, but what do you think, Michael? Is is he on firm footing to just hop on the Grizz? No. I mean, if, well, first of all, he's he's a Thunder fan for, Alan is a Thunder fan for only two years. And he came aboard during uh, an really interesting time, like right after Kevin Durant left and Russell Westbrook, you know, did what everyone thought was impossible by averaging a triple-double. So I, I kind of understand that, uh, you know, being attracted to that and being attracted to the Thunder and what they're all about. But, like, you don't get to just stop being a fan of the Thunder and, and jumping on board to a team that is suddenly the next shiny object just because now they have John Moran and, 
and Triple J and uh, Brandon Clark and all these really interesting but, players. Um, does it matter if he doesn't live in Oklahoma City, though? Does that give him a little bit more of a, a birth here? You know, it's not well, then like I, 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 yeah. But was, then I question the the Oklahoma City Thunder fandom to begin with. In which case, he was never a Thunder fan from the jump, and he can jump around uh, from team to team as he so pleases. Alan, I got to say, man, Michael is co-signing everything your friend had to say. This is a crushing blow to your <laughs> uh, to your self-confidence. Um, I, I kind of hear what everyone's saying. I do think if you're this ready to jump on the Grizzlies for those characteristics, it's possible that you weren't ever really a true Oklahoma City Thunder fan. And I think that's okay. I think that the real standard here is how many games are you watching the Thunder play this year? If you're in for 60 games this year, Despite all the changes, despite the fact that they're probably not going to, uh, you know, make the playoffs and everything else, if you're talking yourself into Shea Gilgis Alexander as a future All Star, if you're still, you know, laughing at every single Stephen Adams post game quote, then I think you can maybe flirt a little bit with the Grizzlies, right? But if you've already checked out on the Thunder and you're just all about Jaw, all about JJJ all the time, you're you were never a Thunder fan, and. Look, honestly, you might be jumping at the right time. Like, I don't know if you saw Jaron hit 43 points the other night, nine three-pointers, and, you know, Ja has been spectacular at times during his rookie season. Um, you might be better off just pretending the Thunder part of your fandom just didn't exist and, and rolling forward with that. But I wouldn't say this if you were uh, a resident of Oklahoma City. At that point, I would say you have no choice. You're stuck. You have to be a Thunder fan. You might have a little bit more flexibility here, Alan. Uh, given how young you are to the NBA fan experience. Okay, last email here comes in from Mo, and it's a longer one, but he makes a lot of points. He writes, I'm a longtime listener from Tennessee, the land where most basketball fans are supporters of -of out-of-state teams. I, for one, am and have been a jaded New York Knicks fan since my earliest childhood memories. My first game was against the Washington Bullets. I lived through the drama and excitement of the 90s. The early 2000s were a blank for me due to my service in the Navy. When I returned to the States and was privy to the NBA once more, I was hurt and disappointed that the Knicks had become the laughingstock of the league and had been for quite some time. While I blame ownership for this disastrous ordeal, my qualm is not that at the moment. What really bothers me is the argument of whether team support is greater than individual player support. Like the emailer Jimmy, the Orlando Magic fan, I believe loyalty through thick and thin is what truly is significant when it comes to fandom. I have a longtime friend who is LeBron James supporter number one. According to him, LeBron can do no wrong, and according to the current Lakers record, he's right. What I believe my friend to be wrong about, though, is how he uses the word we to describe his support for the team. I believe that player fandom negates the context of we, especially when he has used that same term for LeBron stops with the Cavaliers, Miami Heat, and now the Lakers. Because I'm a Knicks fan, I'm insulted that he uses we when he's talking about the Lakers. The term we is used for a unified front being based on support that highlights loyalty through atrocities and ultimate ultimately elation once success is found. So, Michael, what he's saying is if you're going to be a player fan and that player hops from team to team, you don't get to be a fan of the teams too. You only get to be a fan of the player. You don't get to say we as a Lakers fan. Does our guy Mo from Tennessee, the former naval officer, have a point? I think he does. And I also want to say that Jimmy has clearly struck a chord with a lot of listeners. Like, Jimmy should probably run no, for Jimmy's president. more popular. He's more popular than yeah, either one of 100%. us. 100%. I mean, it's, it's it, Jimmy, you are now the co host. Um, but to his point, though, like, is. Are there lines to player fandom? And what's the best way to play it? I, I mean, I don't really know because I've never, you know, I like a lot of players around the league more than other players. And I think the term root is probably a little too strong. But, you know, I'm not mad when someone who I enjoy watching plays well. Uh, I want to see good basketball. Uh, but I've never really, you know, even growing up, I didn't, you know, if someone were to get traded from my favorite team, I wouldn't particularly love them anymore I, I would not you know live and die by their box score every morning with the newspaper showing my age a little bit right now um so I don't I don't really I don't know the answer to this I would say that 
uh, I would I would I'm leaning more towards the emailer here than his friend. Like I, I don't think you can use we uh, if you are just a fan or you're more so a fan of a player and you're jumping from team to team. That's that's literally bandwagon jumping. So I I I, I side with the emailer more more so, but I don't. I don't defini- have a definitive answer here. It's a tricky, tricky situation. Here's where the line. I think if you're a LeBron fan, you can get a jersey and his shoes for any team, right? And you can wear that jersey proudly in public. But I, yeah, this is the definition of bandwagon jumping to go from Cleveland to Miami to Cleveland to Los Angeles and the whole way along say, we, we, we. You're not, you know. You're not with Clutch, buddy. Like you're just a fan. Like you're not part of the James family. You're just a fan. So Mo, I thank you for your service overseas, and I thank you for your service when it comes to policing fan behavior. It's just too far. You are not a part of the we if you're a LeBron fan who's signing on with the Lakers because we know you did not experience the agony of the last five or six Lakers seasons, much of which I had to see in person and sit through. Uh, and certainly, if you were not watching. Uh, you know, Kobe Bryant on his last legs and the awkward transitions uh, during that time period. If you did not suffer through D'Angelo Russell's Snapchat antics, you don't get to show up when uh, LeBron and AD are, you know, 24 and three and running through the entire league. That's just not how it works. All right. Thanks so much, guys, for those amazing emails to openfloormail at gmail.com, openfloormail at gmail.com. Let us know what you think about our trade scenarios. And you know what? I bet there's a lot of guys out there listening to this and ladies who are thinking, you know, those guys' trade scenarios were terrible. I've got better ones. Okay, let's hear them. We want your fake trades. Send them in. Openfloormail at gmail.com. We will take a look. Guys, check us out on Apple Podcasts by searching for Open Floor. That's two words. When you find the page, scroll down. It will say rate and review tap five stars it's just that easy to help us spread the word i'm on instagram at ben.goliver uh, michael is on instagram and twitter at michael v as in victor pina check me out on tw- twitter as well at ben goliver sign up for my washington post newsletter the link is right at the top it's just that easy it's free it comes out monday and uh you know hits your inboxes we'll have a christmas preview coming up next week so sh- be sure to subscribe Uh, and all those good things. All right, Michael, until later this week, I will talk to you. Talk to you soon, Ben.